Hello, I'm Dr. Hilary Jones and welcome to Think Which Service from NHS Shropshire, Telford and Rekin. Now, in this podcast, I'm chatting with other healthcare professionals to get the best advice on how you can look after yourself and if you need help, which is the best NHS service to use. There's a range of local NHS services and you don't always need to see a GP or go to A&E. We're here to help you work all that out. Now, in this episode, we're talking about children and young people's health. With me is Dr Jess Harvey, who's a GP partner at Much Wenlock and Cressage and also clinical director of the South East Shropshire Primary Care Network. Also with me is Francis Pollard. Francis is the professional development lead for health visiting in Shropshire, Nort 5 Public Health Nursing Service at Shropshire Community Health NHS Trust. Uh, hello, Jess. Hello, Fran. Hi. Hi. Please tell me a little bit about yourselves, your, your experience in child and young person's health. Um, where you've got to today from where you've come in the past. Let's start with you, Jess. So I'm currently a GP um, in Shropshire and I'm, for my sins, also um, clinical director for our PCM. Um, And I guess my experience in children, looking after children, um, so I've done a lot of uh, hospital jobs before I went into general practice, which included a lot of A&E. And um, I think that really sort of gave me my first real taste of looking after children. So obviously you see a lot of children there. Um, Then as part of my GP training, I did a paediatric job. So then I was doing obviously purely children there, did some more A&E there, then obviously went into general practice. So um, yeah, so I ended up seeing a lot of, the benefit of general practice is you get to see a whole host of people from all ages but certainly a lot of children um so yeah i guess that's probably my experience plus my relatives uh children who also keep me on my toes i bet they do and fran your your background is health visiting uh tell me a little bit about your uh, your life career so far okay well i started as an adult nurse many years ago um worked in orthopedics um about 12 years ago we did my health visitor training um i've worked all over really so started off in brighton hampshire Came up to Shropshire, worked in Telford um, initially, and then working in Shropshire for the past sort of seven, eight years. Um, over the last year, I've been working as the professional development lead for the health visiting team in Shropshire. Yeah, so lots of experience working with children and families um, aged 0 to 5. And I also have a child, so a bit of experience there as well. So. Excellent, excellent. Well, I, I, having been a GP for far too many many years for me to, to want to uh, admit to, I think we've got a, a lot of experience between the three of us. So let's get cracking and uh, let's talk about... Um, you know uh, what? What child, um, children, and young people's health really means? Why? Why is it a, a specialism in its own right, and how does it differ um, from adult health? Um, in, in in what ways is it is it subtle and nuanced differently? Uh, can I start with you, Jess? Yeah, yeah. I I remember when I started doing a paediatric job. Actually, and one of the consultants I first said to me, um, "Children aren't just little adults." Um, and I think that's really true in that they they bring their their own unique um, sort of issues that the conditions aren't always exactly the same in them. Communications completely different, and, and and how and how like diseases present can be also really different in children. So so they are specialty in in their own right. Certainly, there are some conditions that that span all ages, but uh, but they present differently in children, just like they would in that we see in elderly people sometimes. So it's really important that that as clinicians, we're all aware of that and, and have knowledge of 
sort of paediatrics, but I guess also the general public that we appreciate that children have their own special special needs, if you like, um, compared with us as adults. Yeah, and I found communicating with uh, children is 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 a challenge sometimes, but it's also very rewarding. Um, they have a sense of humour. If you can appeal to that, they they warm up to you. So, so when I when I became better known on TV. I found it, it it was much more likely that a child would offer their ear to me uh, to, to, to uh, yeah, put my horoscope in and have a look at their eardrum because they, they oh, you're the doctor off the telly. Um, and one child said, uh, in the, in, when we can all remember who Davy Crockett was, he said, I've got, Davy Crockett had three ears. He had a, a left ear, a right ear and a, and a wild front ear. Um, so I, I love the things that children say. Fran, uh, for you, the specialism of, of uh, children's health, how is it different from adult health? Yeah, I mean, I think that children and young people's health is more about looking at the bigger picture. So we're not just avoiding and treating the ill health. It's it's more of a package like physical health and develop. It's really intertwined with their development and where they are developmentally with you know their age. There's obviously with things like growth, their cognitive, emotional, social health and well-being. Um, it, it's all intertwined, and they all work together to sort of form their overall well-being. In public health, you know, we, we try and get you know them on a really healthy path really early on to hopefully kind of reduce sort of the impact of poor health later on in life. I think I think that's where it's sort of different. Well, it's not really different from adults, but that's kind of my my idea of, of children's health. Really, it's it's the the whole. You, you're not just treating the the illness rather than thinking of everything. And do you consciously change the language that you use with children? I mean, I I know that some um, children tend to think in very concrete terms don't they so if if a parent's had a heart attack that they'll often think something has physically attacked their parent's heart so it, it's sometimes one has to adjust the the language we use and sometimes ask them what they've understood by what's happened did you find that I think you have to be very careful with the language you use and um, also having like a a greater impact you know if you say say somebody had died and you've said oh they died in their sleep then that child might then always be worried about going to sleep because they think that that might they might not come back so i yeah definitely agree you have to be very careful with your language i mean mostly most of the time because we're working with naught to five we're communicating with the parents um in my line of work um obviously you're communicating with the child as well um if they can understand but a lot of our communication is is working with that parent to support the child's health now, we hear a lot, uh, Jess, don't we, about giving children the best start in life. What does that mean for you uh, and, and why is it so important, do you think? I, I guess like we talk about the best start in life and, and it's hard because I think sometimes that puts a pressure on people who think perhaps they might not, as the stereotype goes, be giving that child the best start in life for whatever reasons be that their social situation, financial, you know, lots of other things. I think it's very difficult to kind of, I think it's a little unfair to kind of, for us to kind of say like, you know, what's the, what's the ideal start in life? I think because children have all sorts of different upbringings and essentially as long as there is one where there is, uh, they have sort of that love and care in whatever form it comes, then that's great. But, you know, it's, we, you can, you can break it down really, couldn't you? So there's sort of their, their social situation. So having sort of loving guardians around you and having those connections as having sort of the roof over your head and good nutrition, those sorts of things that probably sometimes some of us take for granted really. Um, but then things like having, uh, so we talk about nutrition, then sort of good 
I mean, vaccinations are a key thing in early childhood because those are things that can really prevent those conditions that we've in the UK managed to eradicate a, a lot of conditions now through early childhood vaccinations. And I think sometimes we forget how some of these conditions can have really serious complications if we don't vaccinate against them. They're rare, but if, if your child's affected, then I'm sure you'd probably wish that you had had the vaccinations. Um, and then there's things like, you know, then we talk about education, you know, being active, all of those sorts of things. I think Fran's right. There's such a holistic approach that I think we've now learned to take in medicine um, for, for all ages, but definitely with children, just appreciating that they, they have all these different needs to form connections, to be active, to get out, to have experiences. I noticed when I went swimming recently that there's a campaign locally on my council for children to do 10 things before they're 10 that sort of includes like camping out in the, under the stars and, you know, go swimming and do like this and that. And I think, and I thought that's great because it just kind of encourages people who might not naturally go and do those sorts of things to expose their children to those experiences, which I think are all a huge part in growing up. We all grow differently, but there are certain things that we can all benefit from. Well, Fran, you, you must have seen how some children uh, don't have all the privileges um, in, in, in the early start of life. Um, you know, that, that for one reason or another, um, they, um, they don't get the nutrition they need. Uh, they might not get the unconditional love they need. Um, can children make up for a bad start in life, for, for a, a less fortunate start in life? And, and, and how much can um, health visitors and, and other healthcare professionals assist there? They can make up for it, absolutely. You know, at any point where things are made more positive in their life, that that could that will have a, a more positive impact. But when, um, if we look, do you know? Do you know about the thousand and one days? It's it's what we say. It's like the the crucial thousand and one days of sort of baby brain development, really, which starts at pregnancy, conception, and then goes through to the age of two. And they say that this is the the age where the brain is kind of takes the most things in, and it kind of builds those building blocks, if you like, for future life, health, and growth, and how they're going to succeed within their life so you've you've got that and that's you know so the earlier the really early age of development you've got that going on later on if changes are made then you know the scaffolding that's on that's on top of those foundations if you like can be built or taken down but those foundations will always stay there so i think that's why that early intervention and getting the, giving the children like the absolute best start in life right from the very beginning is so important because it is the time where you know, things are most crucial for how they are, you know, for their health and their well-being and development as they kind of progress through life. And Jess, you know, you, you, you've you already touched on, on vaccinations being so important. And I spent a lot of time in the last uh, two or three years, uh, particularly during the first couple of years of the pandemic, um, and more recently talking about the importance of vaccinations in early life, the routine immunisation programme. And yet, um, you know, people to some extent have forgotten how important they are. We, because we don't see so many childhood infections as we did a century ago that killed so many uh, children, um, there has been some vaccination fatigue after COVID. Um, there has been suspicions about measles um, through, you know, discredited um, articles in the past. You know what I'm referring to, the, the Wakefield Day Barkler. And, and we have uh, some areas of the country with quite worryingly low rates of um, vaccination. Um, 
tell me, tell us or remind us, why is it so important to make sure that your children are vaccinated against the, the common childhood illnesses? Yeah, you're entirely right. There's been a combination, I guess a perfect storm, if you like, um, probably over the last 10, 20 years that's, that's gradually built up in terms of people perhaps getting, I guess, um, I don't know, do we say that we sort of got complacent about some of these things? Um, but yeah, I think you're right, like with COVID, COVID had two things really. I think there was kind of the vaccine fatigue I think there was a lot of misinformation about vaccines that got spread at that time that that people would would have been exposed to um, and would have put, you know, and I suspect may have contributed towards making things a little uh, more difficult for some people to feel safe, uh, that that they felt comfortable with vaccinating their children. But also I think COVID itself probably didn't help in terms of vaccinations. We know sort of in general practice, you know, you saw that, that when we were first asked to essentially to only have, sort of see people face to face um for for certain things that we had to then play catch up essentially on the vaccinations which I sort of know personally that uh, all the practices did ever, have done everything they could to try and catch up with that but I think some people you know may have just assumed that they can't catch up with that now um vaccines uh, have been uh, one of the if when you look at the important medical developments in time. There's like antibiotics, there's vaccines, and I think there's joint replacements. And, I, you know, those are sort of the big things that I think have really revolutionised medical care. Um, you know, you're, right, you're right to say we've, we've eradicated some conditions like, like tetanus that you would have seen common, commonplace, you know, 100 years ago in this country, but now aren't there. Things like, you know, like we've talked about, touched on measles, um, which unfortunately now we're seeing, starting to see more commonly because the vaccine level has gone down. Vaccines essentially protect your child against those conditions, but they also provide what we talked about during, you probably heard in COVID, about herd, herd immunity. So essentially the the concept that if you can have as many as possible in your herd, if you like, so in your population vaccinated, then the one or two who are really sick and can't be vaccinated for some reason or who vaccines don't work in, they're protected because you're protected. So you aren't carrying it around, so you aren't spreading it to them. We talked about that with COVID um, especially. So if you look at the va- if you look at the COVID cases, there, there's a really good example that the, the COVID cases are rising and rising and rising and suddenly they dip and they dip at the point where the children got vaccinated because the children stopped spreading it to their elderly relatives who were dying from it. Um, so that's why vaccinations are so important. They don't just protect your child, but they protect those people who are really vulnerable in our population who for some reason can't have it. Um, and that, you know, they're preventing not just that condition, because we know the majority of, say, measles cases, you know, the chances are the, the vast majority of children who have that would be, are going to be unwell for a short period, but they'll get better. But there are those few ones that may have really quite, sort of really serious complications, you know, for measles, for example, having a really bad meningitis reaction. Um, you know, uh, for, for mumps, you could potentially have sort of for males, they can have problems um, with their testes and have uh, problems there or you can have issues with your hearing if as a complication so these are really serious things that can happen as Franz pointed out in a really important stage of these children's lives so I I struggle to see the downside of having a vaccination but I completely appreciate that the amount of misinformation out there um, is really difficult sometimes to to feel that you can navigate through that so I think if I was to say one thing to try and get across, it's that if you're unsure about getting vaccinated, 
uh, getting your child vaccinated or any adult who's unsure about getting vaccinated, then look at um, look at a trusted resource. So look at the NHS website, look at that guidance. And if you're reading something else online, I don't know, on, on Facebook, you know, or something else, then just consider where that information is coming from. Um, because you really need to be looking at information that is tried, tested. We talk, you know, the, I guess the, the medical term is, you know, peer assess, you know, research that's been, that's been rigorously tested. You know, that, that's what we would use, but that's what the NHS is basing their stuff on. Whereas the person who's just posted an opinion, it might not be. Well, absolutely. And as you say, people do, do have short memories. I worked uh, for a while in the past at a school called St Thomas's School in Basingstoke, School for the Deaf. And 90% of those children were congenitally deaf because of rubella. Uh, and, and thankfully now we have MMR. So those children who have the vaccine um, are, are protected against against that. And, and we shouldn't forget rubella has very serious um, effects on an unborn baby if the mother should catch it. So these things we, we kind of forget. And Fran, I'm sure you're asked um, by worried parents, you know, that, that and this is a difficult question for you. But how, how do you answer um, a parent or a carer who says, is it safe? Is it completely safe? Um, how do you tackle that one? I trust the the evidence that's out there. So, you know, I'm, I will signpost them to the NHS website and I will I will tell them what is there on the NHS website because, like you say, I know that, that is based on resources. It is safe and the downsides of not having it could be catastrophic. If everybody decided not to have immunisations, then would be where we were many, many years ago with lots of, lots of poorly unwell children. So... It's a really difficult conversation, I will be honest. And there's always some parents who, whatever you say, they've, they've just read so much on social media that they nothing that we say will change their mind. But we we do a good job at trying and trying to persuade them that it is the best thing for their child. So. Yeah, we all do. And and one of the things that, that I say, and, and, and I say this in practice and, uh, and in the studio, is um, uh, I vaccinated all my children. I have five children. I had no hesitation in vaccinating them for all of the routine uh, childhood immunisations. Um, I didn't think about it. Um, maybe I'm a generation that, that remembers how common childhood infection was. But uh, if I say, look, I, I, I vaccinated all my children. Is that is that good enough? Sometimes that means more than the statistics you read online or or in a textbook or or, or hear from somebody else. Um, so for me, that that works sometimes. So si- since we've heard that that measles uh, could affect forty thousand to one hundred and sixty thousand children in London alone, and we've seen outbreaks in Leicester and Cardiff and uh, I think Bristol as well. Um, let's just remind ourselves, Jess, of the the symptoms of, of measles, which some people won't have seen. So give us a little resume of, of a typical measles uh, infection. Yeah, yeah. well, well the, the problem is the first bit isn't going to really be very helpful because the first signs you have are a bit of a high temperature, runny nose, sneezing, maybe a bit of a cough. I mean, I get some red eyes, um, which is really difficult because, you know, how many parents have seen that? Um, you know, you probably see that on a monthly basis when you've got a young, really, really young child. But the important thing to be aware of is that then then there tends to be like a typical rash that's a, that, that sort of gradually spreads. It can look a bit reddy or browny. It's sort of scattered and it normally comes after those cold symptoms. Sometimes it starts behind the face or ears and then it spreads sort of across the body. 
uh, can look a little bit as uh, is my, my trying to explain a rash now, which is always a challenge. Uh, sort of a little bit blotchy um, with a bit, so with some nice red raised bits, um, and they can sort of form sort of blotchy patches. They're not normally itchy, um, which might help some parents because. I think it could possibly look like a, like it could look a little bit like eczema if your child's really prone to eczema, which eczema tends to be very itchy. Um, so yeah, so they they tend to develop that. You can get some little white spots on the inside of your cheeks, um, which is sort of classic, um, and sometimes at the back of the lips. But um, and that normally sort of a, they normally last a couple of days. Um, so essentially, those are the signs that you're looking out for. So really, the only thing that really is going to distinguish this from anything else is that typical rash that we see. The child can be quite distressed with it, high temperature and streaming nose. Um, you know, I've seen a few, quite a few cases and it's not pleasant. And, and of course, um, Fran, um, last year you, you had uh, a lot of strep A around. That's right. And I know a lot of parents and carers would have been worried about strep A. Um, is that still a, a, an anxiety they have this year? Um I mean, I haven't heard as much anxiety about it this year, I'll be honest. But last year, there was an awful lot of anxiety where the calls to the health visiting team did significantly increase um, with parents worried about strep A. I haven't seen it this year yet, but it, it might be starting to happen. <laughs> yeah, any anytime soon. Um, and, and of course, talking about vaccinations, they're looking at um, uh, vaccinations in the future for chicken pox, uh, which we're seeing a little bit more of, and um, uh, respiratory syncytial virus. Uh, I know they're working on that, which, which again peaks in the winter months, and we're seeing quite a bit of it right now. So lots of colds and coughs, partly because, you know, we're not socially distancing anymore after COVID. We're not washing our hands as much and our immunity has waned so all those people who said for the last two years haven't had a cold for ages are suddenly getting a lot of colds there's a lot of it about as they say and and of course we don't always want to bother um, the GP and um, emergency services so what services are available locally in in Shropshire Telford and uh, Rekin Jess what what services are easily accessible Accident emergency, it's an emergency department. That's what that's what accident emergency is there for. And I appreciate that access to general practice is sometimes difficult for whatever reasons. But I think what we're really trying to get across is that there's there's a lot of other resources that are out there. Um, and I guess this isn't really even exclusive to Shropshire. You know, there, there, are, huge, there are lots of other people available that, that could help you. There's the NHS website, which is great. There's the 111 service that you can call and have advice from. Um, you can go to local pharmacies um, and, and they can help in terms of giving you sort of things that can help with symptoms. Because as we talked about, a lot of these coughs and colds are exactly that. They're, sort of, they're coughs and colds that antibiotics are not going to help and not going to make go away any quicker. Um, but maybe sort of having some of the that cowpaw, the ibuprofen, you know, some cough mixture, that sort of thing can really help with. So there's those services that are available. Um, you know, we've got um, in Shropshire, we've got a, healthier together website um which is like it's it's a great website it's it's really colorful it's really easy to navigate um it, it's got lots of resources there for parents carers like pregnant women uh, people who've got like babies and children um and it just helps you to sort of understand some of those conditions that you might be might be experiencing with with your child uh to guide you through some of the warning signs because i guess as clinicians we always talk about those red flags so things that that we that we think that should definitely raise raise sort of the alarm bells, um, and so it's sort of outlined some of those to help parents understand them. Because what we don't want is people to feel that they can't contact us in general practice because we're always there, 
Um, and and no one would, no one, I, I will never, never think badly of any parent who brings their child in. And classically, they say, oh, they were terrible at home, but now they're great and they're swinging off my curtains. Well, that's brilliant. I that, that Nothing makes me happier than that, because I certainly don't want the opposite when they come in and they're really, really sick. No one wants a sick child. Um, so, so we've got those, those there. And I think, uh, I think if we can encourage people to perhaps start using those local resources that we've got, especially that healthier together website, I think that'll go a long way to just to kind of helping to, to just edu- helping to educate our, our patients, uh, parents, you know, because it's, it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult world medicine. Um, in illness you know i'm sure you and i can both attest to the fact that you know you spend all these time in medical school you come out and you feel that you've got you've kind of done some of the stuff but then we spend how many years working and uh, you know i think there's and there's not a day goes by that i'm not saying to someone every day is a learning day because i've learned something like i learned today about fran that hundred that thousand and one days like i hadn't heard of the thousand and one day thing like i knew it was important but no, me neither exactly we've learned and as as a fellow GP, I mean, we hear all the time people complaining that they can't get a GP appointment. And I'm sure that um, there's a failure to understand the pressures that, that GPs are under, that, that the demand is enormous. Um, it's never been greater. We've got less GPs than we had five years ago, and we're, we're co- trying to cope with more demand. Um, you know, I, I read a statistic yesterday that, that we, we refer 200,000 people a month for just cancer referrals right now. So um, when we talk about childhood infections and childhood illnesses, the pressure is huge. H- how would you recommend that patients can access a GP if they, if they really think it's urgent and, and, and yet the, they're offered appointment some way ahead? Accessing your GP. Um, so there's various different routes. Um, so there's the good old-fashioned phones up, um, get an appointment. Um, yeah, I guess if it's urgent... And the reception. So our receptionists have got the worst job in the world because they get no praise and they are at the cold face. They get all the hard they get all the hard stuff. They get they get the people who aren't happy. They're the ones I have to say I haven't got the point for so long. Um but when they say is it urgent for today, if it's a then if it is, then tell them. There's no 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 one's ever gonna criticize you for feeling that your child's illness is urgent for today. Um, and uh, most surgeries operate a duty doctor system. Um, certainly, my practice do. Um, so whoever's on duty kind of gets all the things that are urgent for that day, and hopefully we sort of manage it. I think there's been one or two times when we've been completely overwhelmed and had to divert things to one one one. And I know other surgeries have had to do that, and that's not something any of us ever do lightly. Um, but I think it's something that should you encounter that in your practice, then. Please don't feel aggrieved. Actually understand that that's that practice trying to work safely. Um, so you can contact your patient if it's an urgent issue, then I, I'm sure your practice will will be able to con- to, to help you. Um, if it's not urgent and it's something that's kind of grumbling along, your practices um, will have an online consultation feature. Go to their website. There will be a button somewhere that says consult with your doctor online. Click on that and it will take you through to a form the practice normally sees them sort of within 24, 48 working hours. Um, so on a Friday, don't expect to reply necessarily on a Saturday or Sunday, but you'll probably get one on a Monday or Tuesday and they can deal with things that way. Um, you can, there's, I guess also, I think if you're offered appointments with other people from the surgery, so maybe not an appointment with a doctor, maybe with a nurse, with an advanced nurse practitioner, anybody like that. So it doesn't always have to be a doctor that can deal with you. And I can assure you there's always a doctor in the building. So if that person that sees you, that you that you think, oh, I'm not getting to see a doctor, if they have a problem, they will knock on our door. So there is always a doctor there to help look after them. 
Um, so there are there are lots of other places. You know, I think in terms of cost coals, it's really encouraging people to have those sorts of things around, like like the cow poles, like the ibuprofen. Um, we talk about steam a lot. I, I seem to talk about steam a lot um, when it comes to coughs and colds because that helps. Uh, I, I think it helps to like reduce the inflammation in the airways. If kids have got coughs, then it helps to sort of bring them up, helps them to breathe a bit easier. And the easiest way to do that nowadays is a hot shower. You can either have them in the hot shower or you can just run a hot shower, shut the door and play with them in the bathroom. And that steam will soon build up and help their airways. Sometimes it's the absolute opposite. You know, you probably see it like with croup is that if you take children outside into the cool air, that can help. Um, so kind of doing those sorts of things, because sometimes that's you can, you can sit with me for 10 minutes and I, and I will be telling you all this at the end of it. Um, so, so doing those sorts of things, um, you know, cough mixtures, um, sometimes that, that goes down well. I guess honey and lemon if you're, if you're a fan of that sort of thing. But all those sorts of self-help things, I think, are really important that we kind of all, all try them. Um but yeah, but ultimately, I think the message that I'd really want to get across is if you're concerned about your child, then please contact us because parents are the best people to judge their children. Um, and if you're concerned, then we, we're concerned. Some great advice there about accessing uh, care when it's needed. And obviously your practice is, is, is geared up um, absolutely brilliantly for that. So uh, that's really good to hear. Now, Fran, let's, let's move on to the earliest days, so post-pregnancy, um, childbirth uh, and those first few days. Um, my first wife was a health visitor um, and I know that um, the fantastic work that you do and yet your your services have been cut and cut over the years fewer health visitors uh, is it not right than ever before and yet um, parents young parents are crying out for assistance you know they're not in hospital very long after the, after the birth of the baby they're discharged it seems as soon as possible um, they get home you know they don't have there's no textbook um, really uh, there's no practical guide to how to look after this new baby that, that's in your lap and it's scary for young parents um, what are the commonest kind of issues that come your way what are the commonest worries and, and anxieties that that parents have I think in the in the early days um, a lot of it's feeding issues so parents are concerned about the weight that the babies are putting on how the babies feed so breastfeeding we do a lot of breastfeeding support um, or you know formula feeding if that's how they're feeding sometimes they just need some advice on how to how to do that how to sterilize um, we monitor the baby's growth if there's any concerns um, maternal mental health that's or well parental mental health so um, all parents mental health that's that's a big thing that we support with in health visiting um, as the child's getting older, we support with um, weaning on solid food, healthy diets, how to access, um, you know, healthier lifestyles. So that would be, you know, diet, exercise, getting good sleep, um, managing sort of challenging behaviours and things like that. Um, I mean, I think it's just worth sort of like, you know, giving a bit of a shout out to the health business school nursing service really, because we are here and, you know, we can support keeping the people out of um, the GP if necessary. Obviously, if your child is clinically unwell, then you need to follow the advice that Jess like mentioned earlier. But, you know, we can actually support with quite a wide range of things from developmental delay. Um, we can refer to services for, um, you know, if they've got concerns with their vision or hearing, um, we can refer to physio, we can refer to speech and language. 
uh, we can support with sort of advice for minor ailments. So actually, there's a lot we can do. The school nursing team as well for over five-year-olds, they have an aneurysis clinic. They can support with obesity, substance misuse, sexual health. Um, and we all support with emotional health and well-being for the children and the parents. So um, actually, you know, if your child's not clinically well, then have a think about whether we, you know, should you ring the health visitor or school nurse instead, because it might be something that we can help with. Do you liaise with paediatricians at all or is it always through the GP first? We can refer to community paediatricians. So if there's a concerns with child development, then we can make those referrals directly. Um, for sort of hospital paediatricians, then it does have to go through the GP. But again, you know, come to us first. If it's something that we can't help with, then we will say to you, like to the parent, you know, go to the GP. It, this is it's more appropriate for them. What do you think are the greatest needs at the moment for children under 10? What's coming your way, perhaps, that you haven't seen so much of before? I think a lot of need is driven by sort of the economic current, the, the way things are in the world at the moment. So, you know, a lot of people have a lot less, less money. We are, which is having a massive impact on children's health. We're doing a lot more referrals to food banks, um, to sort of like the family information service and the other services, housing, um, because people are having real, real problems with that and it does have a direct impact on the health of their children. And we heard today, Jess, about um, the shortage of uh, medications for, for children with ADHD. Um, uh, you know, um, GPs have been criticised heavily for, for not communicating what to do to, to, to parents with children with ADHD or even adults with ADHD and yet we're, we're often the last to know about these shortages and why they've happened and what to do. Um, so I was talking about this today um, with, with an adult who with ADHD who's got two children with ADHD and he's had a hell of a job just accessing um, the usual medication for all of them. Um, uh, and and we're expected to contact all our patients uh, in this in this situation and tell them what to do about it. It's really tough, isn't it? It's incredibly tough. I, I mean, I guess that what we've gone through with HRT recently, um, you know, with not being able to get hold of that. Um, yeah, I, I, I completely can see how it can be sort of essentially quite distressing if you're a patient who has a child who's, you know, is... Is, is really well managed using med that medication and then all of a sudden there's the potential that that that's that could that could change um i guess what i would i would urge pay parents to be patient with the people that are trying to help them so if you're contacting us like you say the chances are we're the last people that get told and we're then frantically on the phone to the pharmacist saying well what can you get hold of um out of of this list and and things it may be that the medication isn't exactly what you've had before. It might not be an exact, um, it might not be an exact replica. Uh, it could be that it's something that's slightly different. So instead of it being a slow release, that you have to have an immediate release or something like that. Um, but I guess we're kind of trying to do our best in those circumstances. And it's not the pharmacist, the, the chemist that you're going to. It's not their fault. It's not your GP's fault. You know, the drug manufacturers is an incredibly different balancing game. I can, I'm learning over the, my years of general practice. And essentially, you know, we, we saw it with um, when they were making the vaccines because some of them turned over to doing a lot of vaccines that all of a sudden they didn't do some of the other stuff. And so 
it's really hard. It's supply and demand. Um, yeah, but people do their best for you. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're told that the intermittent supply problem will resolve itself in the next uh, two or three months. Let's let's hope so. Certainly, it affects some of the medications more than others, but uh, it, it is being worked on and uh, um, help is out there on the uh, nice guidelines, for example, talk about managing um, without medication if necessary and, and, and tips on how to um, uh, to improve behaviour and organisational skills, that sort of thing. So you might get some patients coming your way. Now, Fran, let me come back to you and, and let's talk briefly about mental um, health uh, in children in, in the last few minutes that we have. We hear that lots of children are struggling. Um, you know, my personal view is that social media has a lot to do with that in, in, in slightly older children. But I think um, anxiety is 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 is, is rife um i think you know we hear about bullying in school we, we hear about all sorts of uh, issues what, what's your take on uh, how we're managing mental health in children in, in locally in your area and, and and what access to care um is there i think it is a struggle in our area and i don't think there are enough services i think the services there are brilliant but there's just not enough of them well as health visitors we very rarely can refer into sort of like the mental health services the school nurses do a lot more um but i know that the children really have to be like really unwell to sort of get seen at the moment so which is a shame um but you know we we you know we're trying to work with families right from you know getting in there really early and supporting those families to you know if families can then support their own mental health then they can help support the mental health of their children you know we do a lot of work about kind of spending time with the children, playing with the children, um, you know, listening to your children, giving them that bit of time every day, trying to get them off social media, away from the TV, getting outside and playing. Uh, I mean, that's the work that we do around mental health is, you know, supporting them that way and then obviously supporting the parents to access the services that they need um, to support their own mental health, to better support those children. Um, I mean, because I, I only work not to five, I, it's hard to comment really for the older children because <laughs> I don't know if Jess has more of an insight to that. Yeah. I can tell by Jess's facial expression that she's desperate to jump in here. Thanks, Ren. I can certainly fill the gap. Um, so this is this is my moment to shine in my um, in my PCM role. So we so Shropshire have children and young people social prescribers who work with children aged eleven to eighteen, um, and essentially they can see children who have uh, sort of low level mental health issues people who have anxiety depression uh, they work with children who are having difficulty getting to school for whatever reason Um, people who are feeling socially isolated if they're struggling with their confidence and they're great they see the vast majority of uh, these uh, young people outside of the surgeries so it's not clinical so they can they use they're seen in the schools or they can meet outside in like libraries and other social places. So it's kind of not that intimidating clinical environment for them. Um, and certainly the the two people, shout out to Kirsty and Caroline, who work in my PCN, um, are brilliant. Um, you know, we, we see they're having such an impact in, in the schools, and the schools can refer directly, so it doesn't have to come to the general practice. So I'm always up for that, for that avoiding um, us having to be necessarily involved in these sorts of things. So it's it's a resource that's there, and I'd really encourage people to to look into that. That you'll have access 
um, through your children's school if it's based in Shropshire or um, if their school is outside of Shropshire but your GP is inside Shropshire then go via your GP. Do you work um, together with, with teachers, school teachers in this regard? A little bit. Like, again, because we're, I'm only up to the age of five, so a lot of our children aren't in school. But when children are in school, if there is any concerns, then we will work together with school teachers, depending on what the, the issues are. If you come across a, a child who's who's struggling to be ready for primary school, for uh, reception, perhaps um, struggling with toilet training, with, with feeding, you know, how do you go about dealing with that? So in our team, we have healthy child practitioners. Um, so if there is a a family, for example, if it was a, a toilet training, then I can refer, well, within our team, we can get the healthy child practitioners and they can go out and do a piece of work with that family um, and follow them up on a, a wide range of things. So, you know, fussy eating, behaviour management, toilet training. If it's a developmental thing and they may, may it may, might be their development and have a developmental delay, which is meaning that that's why they're not ready for school, then that's when we would refer into other services such as the community paediatricians who could then support the family further to that. Super. Well, I've learnt a lot today um, from from the two of you. So Jess and I have learnt, for example, 1001 Days, uh, which we hadn't heard about before. Um, Bags of information from you both. Thank you so much. Um, Any final words from either of you, starting with you, Fran, anything that you uh, would like to say at the end of uh, of this podcast? I think just, um, you know, just just knowing how important it is to try and keep keep your children healthy. So, you know, get them out daily, lots lots of exercise, eat as healthy as you can, promote good sleep habits, um, play with the children, read together, brush their teeth, take them to the dentist, access your school nurse and health visitor. Yeah, I think that's what I'd say. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Good old-fashioned stuff is still true, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Any final word, Jess? Yeah, like what, what Fran said, have a look at that Healthier Together website. You'll see there are loads of resources on there that are helpful. But I think most of all, I'd just say like we are there. So from general practice point of view, we are there. We are happy to see your children for, for whatever it is. And that's what we're paid for. So we're happy to see them. So don't feel our doors closed. From what you've both told us today, I think uh, parents and carers can be very reassured that there are services there locally. That website is stw-healthiertogether.nhs.uk. Loads of advice and guidance about services, everything about physical as well as mental health, improving outcomes, uh, how to treat ill children, um, signs and um, pointers um, to where to go to to healthcare professionals. So an excellent website to, to use. Thank you both very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. So many thanks to Francis Pollard and Dr Jess Harvey for joining me on Think Which Service from NHS Shropshire, Telford and Rekin, talking about children and young people's health. And until the next time, keep up the good work. Mm-hmm.